Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. W is for Woody Woodmancy. So Michael Woodmansey, born the 4th of February 1951, Driffield, Yorkshire, his father being Douglas Woodmansey, originally from the village of Langtoft, also Yorkshire, spent many years serving in the British Army. His mother was Annie, a nurse born and bred in Driffield. She carried on working whilst carrying the unborn Woody right up until the last minute when she passed out on a ward whilst on duty, Mark. Shortly afterwards, her son Woody entered the world. And his father was less than overjoyed with the arrival of little Michael as he had been conceived and born out of wedlock, but her mother was adamant that Annie and Woody would continue to live in the family home. Woody grew up with his mum in his grandparents' house, situated in a new council estate. Also living there at the time were Annie's uncle, Edward, a sister, Deanie, and the two brothers, Harold and Ernest. It's a busy old oh, household, that, absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. As a child, Mick went by the name Mick Bradley, his mother's maiden name. On one occasion, bad feelings grew between Woody's household and some neighbours. They insisted young Woody was annoying them with his drum kit, but the thing was, he didn't own a drum kit. Mm. Yet, deciding it might be a good idea to give them something to moan about, so his folks went out and bought him a snare drum. So when Woody was five years old, his parents got wed. Okay, so we're going to go now. We're going to be dipping in uh, at various junctures uh, throughout this podcast episode into Woody's book, My Life with Bowie, Spider from Mars, Woody Woodmansey, foreword by Tony Visconti. Oh, yeah, so we're going to move on to page seven, I think, aren't we here? We are. So uh, here we go. Uh, Woody's childhood. After you'd had a bath, it was too wet in there for you to put your clothes on, so you had to wrap a towel around you and sprint to the house through the wind, rain and snow, thinking, fuck! Being clean took courage. This was normal back then, by the way. We weren't a poor family, although there wasn't a lot of spare money. After a couple of years, we moved into the upstairs flat, a considerably nicer place, with an inside toilet. It was quite a shock for me to leave the Bradleys, where I was part of a large, warm family who gave me a lot of attention. About a year after my parents married, my sister Pamela was born, which was something else to adjust to. But the most difficult thing was living with a dad I hardly knew, having only seen him when he was home on leave. He was very strict. I wasn't allowed to jump on furniture or walk on walls like you do as a kid. I guess I got used to the more relaxed atmosphere at my grand's house, where I've been the only child in the family. His viewpoint was that I was spoilt. To me, he looked a bit like John Wayne, a bit of a hard man. I began to have a troubled relationship with my dad at this point. He carried a chip on his shoulder for quite a while, as I'd effectively come along and interrupted his army life. He had a lot of mates in the army and none at home, so he didn't have much of a social life because he was a young dad. I was the object of his frustration, basically, and that took a lot of getting used to. It's tough for a kid to feel like his father resents him, although I realised there were some extenuating circumstances. Yeah, he continues, sometimes my dad's annoying would be frightening. My mum would set the table for Sunday lunch and if he was in a bad mood he'd grab a corner of the tablecloth and rip the whole thing off. My dinner would be in front of me and then all of a sudden it was dripping off the wall. This was scary behaviour. Awful, mm, isn't it? Okay, yeah. so um, uh, let's move on then now. So moving on to 1965 now, Woody's aged 14. He'd been something of a disruptive element in the class at school and was often in bother with the teachers. As a result, he got a bad school report which followed through to haunt him as he went on to city's O-levels despite having knuckled down in the months leading up to them. Woody himself thought he'd done pretty well, but it transpired that his performance had been marked down due to his previous misdemeanours. Ooh, uh, with this, he was faced with the option of either leaving the education system completely or being kicked out, and he chose the former. When asked what he wanted to do with his life, Woody proclaimed he was going to be a pop star, to which the headmaster, a guy called John Harrison, proclaimed, You're a moron, Woodmancy, and he always will be. 
Woody went on to join a band called The Mutations, which is a great name, and got his first proper gig at the Book Hotel in Driffield. The band set consisted of Booker T's Green Onions and the Stone's Satisfaction. They also had an original song called Swan Lake. Interesting. Okay. Despite not being a big fan of Woody's chosen profession, his dad used to drive his lad to gigs, and by this time the Mutations were big in Driffield. Having secured a regular slot at the Book, he was earning a few quid as a plumber's apprentice, with the odd dabble at being a rookie electrician neither of which convinced Woody that a serious career in either of those things beckoned. Real life did enter when Woody got a job in the Vertex Spectacle Factory. He actually enjoyed the job and was pretty good at it. It was at the same time that another local band called the Roadrunners, whom the Mutations had supported on occasion, happened upon Woody, ambling around Driffield and shouted, Woody, get in! Uh, This was an invitation to join the band and go up another rung on the showbiz ladder. Life was good. Woody was getting ever closer to being the pop star that he'd warned his headmaster about. Though young love would prove to get in the way and a girlfriend's ultimatum ultimately saw the roadrunners running no more. Ah, bless. So they split up. The following three months saw Woody without a band. And then this happened. Okay, so we return to the book here. At the time, the coolest band in Yorkshire were the Rats. Their guitarist, Mick Ronson, had a great reputation, which I realised was fully deserved when I saw the band at an open-air festival in 1969. I was blown away by his presence on stage and his guitar playing. He was four years older than me and had been playing in bands since 1963 when I was just a kid. It later turned out he'd seen me drum with the Roadrunners at the same event. The Rats had experience, having spent time in London doing gigs, but they'd never quite got the attention they deserved from the record companies. The music they made varied from blues to rock covers and even psychedelia. They'd been known as Treacle for a while. They were one of the first bands from our area to get really big amplifiers. The stage was filled with gear and it looked really impressive. A few months after I saw Mick play at that outdoor event, I was at Vertex doing overtime on a Sunday when I looked up from the glazing wheel at my workbench and the rats were standing there. They'd sneak through security and ask people where I was. We're the rats and my name is Mick Ronson, Mick told me, before introducing their singer Benny Marshall and their bassist Keith Ched Cheeseman. Mick looked very cool. He had long blonde hair and was wearing a crisp white shirt, a long black coat and neatly pressed black trousers with black slip-on shoes, almost like a young English Tom Petty, pleased to meet you, I said. How did you get in here? We sneaked in, he smiled. We needed to talk to you. It turned out that the rats had come all the way over from Hull to ask me to join them. That was quite a compliment, and they were all really nice guys, so of course, I took it seriously. Mick said that their drummer, John Cambridge, had left, and they wanted me to join the rats. He added, they'd have to come to the audition and pretend I hadn't got the job yet, as they'd promised an audition to six other drummers who had insisted on having one. No problem, I replied. Inside, I was delighted. This was a break I needed. I liked being in the Roadrunners, but the rats were much more professional band, and I knew that I'd fit in with a guitar player as good as Mick. Oh, of course you would. Of course you would, absolutely. OK, so uh, let's crack on. So Woody's tenure with the Rats proved to be not only another step in the right direction of local stardom, but it was also pivotal to his career. The Rats were doing well on the local circuit, but despite this, Woody and Mick formed an offshoot band. Struggling to sing and play guitar at the same time, they brought in a bloke called Alan Palmer, who would later go on to change his name to Robert Palmer. Yes, that Robert Palmer. So Woody was working at Vertex during the day and gigging at night. Life was good until 1969. Ex-Rats drummer John Cambridge lured Ronson away to the bright lights of London to hook up with a bloke called David Bowie, who'd enjoyed a hit single with Space Oddity. Luckily for Woody, it was proving to be a hit at the Vertex factory and it looked like his future lay in the spec industry. One Friday afternoon, Woody was hauled into his Vertex boss's office and offered a better job position and a decent raise and he had the weekend to think it all over. But then, 
something happened. This is again going back to Woody's book. Chapter 3, All the Mad Men. Is that Woody, said the voice on the phone. I said, it was. I'm David Bowie. Hello there, I replied, surprised. Mick Ronson gave me your number, he told me. I've got a band down in London. I believe you know my drummer, John Cambridge? Yes, I know, John, I said. Well, John's leaving the band, he continued. Mick says you're a really great drummer and you fit in perfectly as a player and as a person. So do you want to come down to us in London? You don't have to audition. The job's yours if you want it. And I've got a place where you can live. I also have Tony Visconti on bass. And he's my producer. This is great. What an opportunity. Uh, he continues, he sounded polite and Mick had taken the trouble to recommend me to him. So I didn't want to be rude to the guy. I said, sounds good to me, David. But I just need to look at a few things. He was keen to get an answer from me. So I said, I'd call him back on Monday. It might be difficult to imagine now, but in early 1970, Bowie seemed like a one hit wonder. His single Space Oddity, which got to number five in the charts, had come and gone. And the follow up, The Prettiest Star, had flopped. His first album, David Bowie, had been released in 1967 and included whimsical songs like The Laughing Gnome and Love You Till Tuesday. It hadn't worked, and neither had the second album, also called David Bowie, bizarrely, which came out in autumn 69. Not that I'd listened to it. I'd been listening to bands like Cream and Led Zeppelin over the previous couple of years. Bowie's influences were obviously completely different. My friends wouldn't even know who Bowie was if I asked them about him. On the other hand, Bowie's band, who are now called The Hype, were obviously talented, which appealed to me. The four musicians had made a bit of progress, but not much. They played a John Peel show on the 5th of February and done some gigs around London. One of these was unusual because they dressed up as superheroes. Bowie was Rainbow Man, Tony Visconti was Hype Man, Mick was Gangster Man, and John Cambridge was Cowboy Man. That show, with its theatricality, had been seen since as one of the moments that inspired the UK glam scene. Most importantly, he concludes, as I saw it, Mick and I were like brothers. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. After a couple of false starts with the Bowie setup and the hype, including a brief spell as Rono, Woody ended up firmly ensconced in the Haddon Hall tribe with Ronson, Visconti, David and Angie living a hand-to-mouth existence. Yeah, well, and we've already covered the uh, Haddon Hall and the hype stuff. But again, in this book, there's a uh, wonderful story about where Woody said that they'd throw all money into the hat, then Angie would take money out of it, she'd go shopping, come back with food and burn it. Yeah, terrible chef. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's such a great... This book is brilliant. Abs- it is. I absolutely love it. Over the next three years, Woody saw Bowie and his bandmates leap from struggling prog metal rockers to the backing band for David Bowie who'd found his feet as a songwriter with Hunky Dory and then dragged them upwards and onwards with the Ziggy Stardust album. Three years of travelling the world and adulation followed which famously came to an end at the Hammersmith Odeon on uh, 3rd of July 1973 when Bowie pulled the plug on the project or whatever you want to call Ziggy, really, and that was the end of Woody's tenure. It was, yeah, again, well documented throughout this podcast. And so we'll go to uh, the autobiography now then, uh, page 218, Bobbert. That last night at Hammersmith Odeon was probably one of the best shows we'd ever done. We tore through the set and everything just seemed to fall into place. Bowie was particularly on form. Every move he made was delivered with an extra something that made the whole show electrifying. After a blistering version of White Light, White Heat, the Hammersmith audience were going berserk. It got even wilder when Bowie stepped up to the microphone and announced, As this is our last concert of the tour, we thought we'd do something special for you. So we invited one of our friends and I know you'll give a big, warm welcome to Jeff Beck. 
Jeff walked on to thunderous applause and Mick started the riff to Gene Genie. It was a particularly special moment as Jeff Beck was one of Mick's guitar heroes. We did an extended version of the song where they each took it in turn to solo back and forth. It was a Gene Genie like we'd never played it before. Jeff stayed on for round and round and then left the stage to great applause. Then there was a longer than usual gap, but luckily the audience was still making one hell of a noise. Bowie then stepped up to the microphone and signalled with his hands that he wanted the audience to be quiet. They immediately calmed down everybody this has to be one of the greatest tours of our lives he said i would like to thank the band i would like to thank our road crew i would like to thank our lighting people of all the shows on this tour this particular show will remain with us the longest because not only is it the last show of this tour it's the last show we'll ever do thank you my first thought was what did he just say did you say it's the last show we'll ever do my eyes went to trevor who judging by the look of confusion on his face was thinking exactly the same i looked around at the other guys on the stage and most of them wore the same bemused expression some of the audience began shouting out no 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 i could see many of the fans close to the stage in tears then hutch the auxiliary rhythm guitarist started playing the intro chords to rock and roll suicide and we were into the final song of the show throughout the song i was wondering if it was just another bowie's publicity stunts had he planned this or was it just spur of the moment he'd done many things like this before without informing us by the end of the number i was actually quite annoyed so i threw one of my drumsticks in his direction obviously with no malice intended as it missed his head by about six feet then bowie said to the audience bye bye we love you and we left the stage as trevor and i walked back to the dressing room we quizzed each other about what he'd said and what it was all about i guess it was still not enough information at that point for us to reach a conclusion when we questioned mick in the dressing room he said as far as i know he's quit but i'm not sure what it all means you need to ask him We then went around asking various crew members if they had any more concrete information. Some said they'd been told that it was, he'd finished with Ziggy. Others said they thought it was a big stunt and many were just as confused as we were. Bowie had already left the venue by this time. So I decided that, as there was an after-show party, I'd catch up with him there and hopefully get an answer. The party was held at the Café Royal on Regent Street and I'd already seen the guest list, which included Ringo, Lulu, Jagger, Lou Reed, Jeff Beck, Cat Stevens, Peter Cook, Britt Eklund, Elliot Gould and Keith Moon, one of my heroes. Mick had already left for the party, so Trevor and I went together in a cab. As well as getting the truth about that statement, I had another important mission in mind. I was leaving the following morning to go home to Yorkshire to get married. June and I had planned to get married at the end of the tour and had finally settled on a date. We'd have a registry office wedding on the 5th of July with close family and friends from Yorkshire. We'd also planned a short service down in Sussex for our friends on the 7th at a Scientologist church. I'd asked Mick to be my best man for that and also invited David along and said he'd be there. As we'd done all this at real short notice due to not knowing when the tour would actually finish, we hadn't got together any official invitations. It was all verbal. So I wanted to remind David and Mick about the wedding that night. Arriving at the Café Royale, we were confronted by a red carpet and a bunch of photographers madly flashing away as we exited the cab. The place was jam-packed with guests. I'd hoped to see Keith Moon, but there were so many people I never did, and we tried to get to Bowie, but he was just surrounded by the likes of Jagger, Lou Reed, Jeff Beck and Ringo. It soon became clear to us that this wasn't the time or place for any serious band discussions, or wedding reminders for that matter. June and I were married, as planned, in Bridlington Register Office with both sets of our parents and our families and a few old friends present. June had made me a suit as well as a wedding dress over the previous two days. She added the porcelain buttons to a dress that I bought from Japan. Then we came back down to Sussex for the second ceremony. However, Mick and David didn't show up. 
We didn't know what had happened to them, but we couldn't wait any longer, so Trevor stepped in as best man and Jeff McCormack gave June away. Some of the road crew and entourage were guests too. Trevor's daughter, Sarah, was a flower girl, along with Mike Garson's daughter, Jenny. I got a call about an hour and a half after the wedding ceremony while I was getting changed at the house of a friend of myself and Mick. I assumed it was somebody phoning to say congratulations, but no, it was Tony DeFries who said, I'm calling to tell you that you won't be going to France to record the pin-ups album. Why not, I said. I was a little shocked. It was not a statement I was expecting to hear, especially on my wedding day. Well, you said you didn't want to be in the band anymore. He was referring to the moment six months earlier when I'd refused to do the remaining dates during the second US tour unless we got a pay rise. Yes, but we got through all that and sorted out the money, didn't we? I said, and we've done two tours since then. But you said you didn't want to do it, he repeated. I could tell by his tone that this wasn't something I could argue my way out of. Standing there, it struck me suddenly that I'd had enough of this insanity. Not as a musician or a rock star, just as a person. I'd had enough. I really didn't feel like fighting it. I asked if David and Mick were there with him, and as I honestly just wanted to say something like, no hard feelings, all the best. After all, we have been close friends for some time. Yes, they are both here, he said. OK, can I speak to David, I asked. After a few seconds of silence, he answered, he doesn't want to speak to you. All right, I said, put Mick on. He doesn't want to speak to you either, he said. I just said, OK, and put the phone down. I was speechless. Trevor came in and I said to him, do you know who's just called me? He could see by my face that something terrible had happened. De Vries, I knew you were going to get that call, but I didn't want to spoil your wedding, so I didn't tell you about it. Why the fuck would they call me right now? He just looked at me unhappily. My mind was reeling. It was hard to believe that they would sack me in what should have been my happy day. Pretty grim, that, no, isn't absolutely. It? That That's is. just there's no there's no class in that, and I'm you know I'm sure we mentioned before that uh, there, there is a story that um, Bowie did call up. Um, Trevor Boulder yeah. just before Trevor passed away to apologise mm. for the way that he was treated and the way that Woody was treated was pretty despicable as well and also you know if you look at it must have really hurt him that Bowie wouldn't speak to him it must have really really oh. hurt Woody that Mick wouldn't speak to him yeah, yeah absolutely been through so much together yeah, you know that um, gang mentality and everything and you know I mean, we've got to know Woody Woodmancy um, you know and he's, he's such a wonderful fella he really is he's just so so funny. He's so infectious to be around. Uh, I absolutely think the world of him. He's not a close mate. I'm not trying to pass him off as that, but I know him pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And I've had a lot of back and forth with him and interviewed him a few times. And he's just a genuinely brilliant fella. And of course, an amazing drummer. That's the thing, right, okay, with their drummers. And I can say this hope without um, anybody contradicting me. But Mike Joyce was a great drummer in the Smiths. Mm, mm. He's a miles better drummer now. Yeah, he's yeah. older. Yeah, he's just been playing longer. Yeah. And, you, and you, you know, you hear Woody playing uh, on all of the Spider stuff. Absolutely brilliant and perfect. But, the, yeah, you hear him drumming now, and he's even better. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, uh, going back to the, uh, the passage there where he's talking about the uh, Hammersmith audience show mm. and the confusion. So it was quite recently, four cheap things, that I interviewed a guy called Robin Mayhew. Yeah. So Robin, um, he'd been mixed up with various other bands, and uh, and at one point his band that he was doing the sound for was doing a gig with Bowie. Mm. Okay, and so what happened was he he their band went on first, and he did an amazing job with the sound. He had this PA which was like top notch, and then Bowie went on, and it sounded shocking. And he got a tap on the shoulder from Angie Bowie. She said, my husband would like to have a word with you. So Bowie said to him, look, your band were playing really loud, but we could hear every word that your singer was, was coming out with. I sounded terrible. What was that all about? And so Robin just said, well, it's a great PA and I know how to use it. So Bowie said, right, well, yeah, 
will you come on tour with us? Right. He did the Ziggy tour right from the start, the yeah. rehearsals, uh, rugby club, I think it was. And, and then he did all of the Ziggy tour and he did all of the Aladdin Sane tour. Mm. And the funny thing is that he, he's got a bootleg of the last night of the Hammersmith Odeon right. because he did record every single night of the tour, mm. both tours, Ziggy yeah. and Aladdin Sane. And um, he only had one cassette. <laughs> and, and this was at the insistence of Mick Ronson anyway. Who yeah. wanted, if, if something went wrong in, in a show, Mick Ronson would listen to it the next day and go, right, thanks very much, I know what we did wrong there, give him the cassette back. Yeah, sure. And then he would record that night's show on it. Mm. And so it was just, it must have been so knackered by the end of these two years of touring or whatever. But the thing was that he did record every night, but only the very last one oh. exists, which is, of course, a Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah, yeah. Because after that, he had no more shows to rub it with mm. because they'd split up. But the thing was, he, was, he said, I asked him about the, whether he knew what was going on or not. And uh, he said, I didn't at the start of the show. He said, but join the interval, because the, pro- the, the show did have a break in the middle, yes, didn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Um, and he said, join the interval. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a stage kind of um, roadie. He was a guy who looked after all of the stage uh, mm. needs for Bowie and the mm. Spiders. And he said, my intercom went off at the soundboard. This is Robin. And it was his mate. I think he might have been called Pete, was it? Uh, but he said, uh, I think this is the last show you know and he's like and Robin's going what what are you saying he said I think this is the last show we're ever going to do and he's going oh right okay and then they came on so he had that little bit of a heads up ah alright that's but interesting but only halfway through the show oh, um, wow. and it's a great it's a great interview with Robin yeah. Bayhew he's a, he's a really top fella so uh, you should probably get your ears around that well only if you remember cheap things actually so uh, continuing then with Woody uh, unlike Mick Ronson and Trevor Boulder as we've just discussed in the book Woody didn't follow Bowie to France for the pin-up sessions Ainsley Dunbar took over on the drum duties and once Mick uh, flew solo once again Trevor was on board but Woody wasn't yeah after the Ronson gig fizzled out Woody and Trevor formed the Spiders we've covered them previously haven't we in this podcast but that didn't really come to anything and then Woody's next vehicle ba-bum was U-Boat which again (laughs) didn't really go too far no and we have covered that as well haven't we yeah but non-Bowie related drum duties also included yeah Art Garfunkel well the Cybernauts which was a kind of a the start of what he's doing now with Holy Holy in a way yeah uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners plus various other session engagements there's a great little part in the book in there he's talking about his time with Dexy's and Kevin has to make the tea. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And obviously uh, we've talked about the fact that he uh, co-leads Holy Holy with Tony Visconti. And and that is just something really, really great that you should probably see. Yeah, and uh, as we've been reading from it, Woody published his autobiography, Spider from Mars, My Life with David Bowie in 2016. It was co-written with author Joel McIver and includes a foreword by uh, Tony Visconti. Do you know, I've seen uh, Woody doing Q&As on two different occasions. So one was at the, uh, the, the Refuge, the Palace, hotel as it is now oh yes yeah um and that was actually in the company of john robb mm. and it was a festival louder than words that john robb organizes john also being a member of the membranes yeah. who were a punk band from blackpool who played alongside the fall and all those people uh, back in the day and uh, john robb stepped in at the last minute because joel mciver previously mentioned got stuck in traffic mm. on his way there and it looked at one point in time like i was going to be drafted in to do it and oh. i'd never met woody before at that point in time oh, so was that your first time was yeah. it yeah oh. and so i was slightly terrified by that but luckily John Robb, who's much better at those kind of things, stepped in and did it. And you just immediately engage with it. But mm. the second time that I saw what 
everybody doing a Q&A, was just absolutely brilliant. And uh, it was with Dave Simpson um, yeah, you know, yeah. of The Guardian and various other uh, publications. But that was at the um, Deershed Festival, and it was in the company of Ken Scott. Mm. And that, that was such a brilliant day because he interviewed Ken, and then Woody came on, and then both together. And the stories that those two came up together was just like absolutely the most engaging hour you could possibly hope to spend. That must have been great for both of them, though, because not often they'd be in a room together and just kind of riffing off each other and one memory, you know, triggering another and everything else. Well, it's exactly that. I mean, I had a chat recently with somebody who's writing a book about the fall, and I said, look, a particular album, I said, I don't know, I can barely remember anything about that record. Mm. I know we recorded some of it in Hitchin and some of it in Iceland, much more than that I can't remember but when we sat down and started talking about it it was actually Paul Hanley who was in the band as well yeah. um, that things just started flying in and you could see that happening as you say with Woody mm. and Ken Scott they just were like do you remember this do you remember that and they're like talking about the phone you know the phone that goes off at right. the end of life on Mars yeah 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 yeah. and it's something like uh, somebody get that bloody thing you know um, <laughs> you can just hear a, vo- a tiny little voice in the background but they're just triggering all those human yeah. stories yeah. you know uh, this, uh, these amazing records that we've grown up uh, loving. Yeah, how wonderful. Was that also the first time you'd met Ken Scott? And no, I'd been to uh, I'd been oh. to um, Abbey Road with Ken Scott previously yeah. and uh, yeah, on various different projects I've been working on, not least the remastering of Ziggy Stardust, which oh. was uh, uh, one of the best days of my life, if I'm frank. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. 